Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. These interviews were recorded from the 13th season of our live show at the Bryan Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Every show features an interview on an important issue, and then an improv comedy performance based on that interview. You're listening to just the interview from one of those shows. We'd also like to thank our media sponsor, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can check them out at www.minpost.com. This show features a look at the 2018 governor's race in Minnesota. We chatted with candidate Tim Walls, who has represented Minnesota's first congressional district in Congress since 2007. He is a retired command sergeant major in the Army National Guard. After retiring from the Army National Guard, he resumed teaching geography and coaching football at Mankato West Senior High School. In Congress, he serves on the Agriculture, Armed Service, and Veterans Affairs Committees. Also featured is his candidate for lieutenant governor, Peggy Flanagan, who has represented District 46A in the Minnesota House since 2015. She is a member of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. She has also volunteered for Paul Wellstone's U.S. Senate campaign, worked at the Greater Minnesota Council of Churches, and served on the Minneapolis School Board. In 2016, she became the first Native American woman to address the Democratic National Convention as an official speaker. I hope you enjoy the show. So I should say, uh, as a moment of disclosure, I was actually an intern for uh, Representative Walls in 2006. Uh, to be fair, I was a terrible intern. So no. take it for what it's worth. Um, so I actually, I'll start it this way then. Uh, I'll give you the first question to get started. So sure. you are, uh, Congressman Walls and you have, are running together now uh, to, for Minnesota governor and lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I, rumor on the street is that maybe uh, Representative Walls here wasn't the only person who was interested in you potentially being a part of their ticket. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not, but I guess I'd ask you, why, why this guy? Why did you oh, decide to sign up yeah. uh, with this that's guy? Fabulous. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I've met many suitors. And, um, you know, uh, so for those of you who, who don't know this guy, but a lot, a, lot of, a lot of y'all do, and that's why you're here. Um, but my favorite thing about Tim Walls is that uh, he's kind of like Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> Um, and y'all, y'all know Friday Night Lights, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, he's uh, coach to the state champs, teacher of the year, and command sergeant major. And so for me, I was like, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Like, this is, this is my guy. This is my guy. Wow. You, so what, do the other candidates, like, do they badminton coaches and that just doesn't do it well. for you? Or like, <laughs> I, I was just like, who's like Coach Taylor? Like this guy. So, so that for me was you know, what really put me over the edge. But no, seriously, like, Tim and I have been friends for a long time, and I think folks don't know that. Uh, I was his, uh, well, he was one of my campers uh, when I was at Camp Wellstone. Um, oh, okay. And, well, so yeah. I was like, I have the age difference totally backwards yeah, here. Right. Yeah, I look, I look like, great for my age. And um, <laughs> yeah, so he was at Camp Wellstone. And when he was there, and this is 2005, yes. folks were like, who is this guy? He's amazing. Um, and we struck up a friendship and have been friends uh, ever since then. So it was, you know, folks are like, oh, it's very strategic for them to work together. Yeah, it is. And I like him. Let me ask you. Nice. So, that is very nice. <laughs> uh, I, I wish my wife would have heard all those nice things. So. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you've been uh, a member of Congress now for 11 years, correct? That's correct. So your hope is to bring uh, the function and civility of D.C. to St. Paul. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, what, I, yeah. I t- talk to me about why move from there to a governorship, potentially. Yeah. Why, why would you want to make that change? Well, I got my million miles on Delta, so that's all that's in, and so I have that. So no, uh, uh, I think it's like for everybody else that I, I'm certainly honored to be able to do that. But I think there comes a point if you're in public service, uh, you'd actually like to see some things get done, and uh, lots of work goes into it. And it should be somewhat cumbersome. They said the you know the some of us of a certain age remember the little I'm just a bill sitting on a Capitol, you know, sitting. <laughs> oh, they're good. They're good. Totally untrue, by the way. It doesn't work that way at all. So, uh, 
So, no, wanted to come back to Minnesota. Love this state like everyone else. Think we can uh, do our politics a little bit differently. And uh, was very excited to, uh, I think Peggy and I are like-minded in that. So uh, come back, make it work, uh, move things forward so that people don't have to spend all day wondering and, like, scared to turn on their TV of what happened, who's indicted, what trouble's happening. Well, let me ask another question about sort of this national and state focus. So you're very interesting in that you are literally one of, like, I don't know, two Democrats who won uh, a congressional race in a district that Donald Trump won as a Democrat. Yeah. Or it's more than two, ten. but it, it, ten, ten, ten total. Out so of it's four and thirty-five. It, it's very, it's very odd. And actually, Minnesota, I actually like bringing this little stat up. We had three districts that went for opposite party member of Congress Correct. and uh, presidential. So we're very independent-minded people, oh. something like that. Um, yeah. So sure, whatever, if it's okay with you. Um, but. <laughs> I wanted to know what, I guess, the part of the question is, what is the, what made that happen, I guess? Who are the voters and that voted for Donald Trump and voted for you? Yeah, tens of thousands of them. And I said, that both keeps me up at night and it makes me optimistic when I think about that. Um, I, th- I think these are folks that don't spend all day trying to calculate the politics. Um, we, we talk often about this, is that there's a whole lot of people trying to find the center of politics rather than center people's lives. And uh, I think they're frustrated, but I, I think most people, when they go into that voting booth, my opinion anyway, they ask, who do they really think's on their side? They don't have to believe you know all the answers or are with them. And, uh, and they did that. And, uh, and, of course, maybe they just didn't know the other guy I was running against, and they picked me because they saw my name. I don't know. That so what are, been... can you just run through all of the answers you don't know quickly uh, for the audience? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's only an hour show. So, um, no, I, 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 so, but I am curious to dig in on this a little bit. What is the message for, uh, you know, I think a lot of Democrats are sort of thinking and talking about, oh, how do we talk to uh, voters in places that we used to win and now we're losing, or uh, these communities that used to be strong, maybe blue-collar Democrats or things like that, and um, and I've got to imagine you've gotten some calls like this from people just like, Tim, what do you say to these folks, sir? You would think so, but we had this, the Democrats after the election had this little gathering to try and deconstruct what happened in there and they were saying and the the title of the the segment was how do we reconnect and get back rural voters and they had a a panel of nine people speaking all from california and i I was one of the people in the audience and and again no i i think that there is a and this is challenging not whether you're a democrat or republican the challenge is this is what causes the gridlock and and i think for me we've lost that ability to uh I think recognize that the the cultural piece, I'm a cultural geographer, what do people identify first? What do they see first? And a lot of times they don't lead. I don't think a lot of people lead with that they're a Republican or a Democrat. I think I would lead with, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm a football coach, I'm a bad golfer, I'm whatever. We got to the point where I think... It's sad if you lead with, I'm a bad golfer, (laughs) my name is Ryan. Hi. My... but but the point being is is that I think we got so caught up in that and, and the politics had shifted where the Democratic Party had become a more urban party. You know, you see those maps, red and blue, and there's all that red across there, and Democrats go into depression over it. It's mostly rocks and cows that are in that red area when you see it um, because of demographics. I'm a geographer, but it doesn't change the fact that... Every, Moving towards an urban population left a lot of people in areas where they were wondering where where was the person speaking for them. And I, I think that got lost. And, and this, so this is a piece that I think a lot of – and I'm, we're playing a little bit of political science here, and I want to get to a few issues quickly. But I am curious – I mean, uh, you spoke at the Democratic National Convention last year, uh, and yet uh, – <laughs> And you've uh, been active in politics. I mean, I think that a lot of us uh, watched 2016, and however you fell on it, the walk away was, oh, this is a lot more, this is a lot more sort of tribal, uh, cultural than I thought it was, right? Like, it's not so much about the uh, maybe who is going to do what for me as, a, as it seemed to be, oh, this is my team, this is my, like, jersey that I'm wearing. I mean, obviously, we have some examples of that being different, but I don't know, is that too pessimistic? Is that too close-minded? Well, I mean, I guess it would... I, <laughs> I wish it would have been more tribal, like, my tribal. Um, <laughs> that would have been helpful. Um, but, but I'll say this. I think... I'll just be really honest and say I don't know that people of color or indigenous folks were surprised by the outcome of this election. 
Um, this is something that has been just below the surface for many of us for a long time. And unfortunately now, when the President of the United States is the person who is sort of leading with hate speech um, and, uh, you know, it is now literally like out in the streets. Um, and so I think many people in this country are now seeing what a lot of us saw already. Um, and so when I think about the way that this conversation oftentimes is framed as like identity politics, and we don't want to talk about identity politics, or when I was named, you know, as, uh, as Tim's running mate, I heard this like some pundits on a couch talking about, well, they're certainly going for identity politics. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Because in this last election, the identity politics that we saw was like about not my identity, but other folks. And, and so like, let's, let's just like tell, let's tell the truth. But in addition to that, is that a silver lining to what I imagine you see as a very dark cloud? <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't, you know, not that I, I want people to, to be horrified, but I think it's important to say, you know, and Tim talks about this a lot, that every generation has to sort of refight those battles and we just have to get real about that. So what is our role in that fight? And the, but the other thing that I would say is if you live in, you know, the, sort of the urban core or in greater Minnesota, you come from an indigenous community, you come from the western suburbs, whatever it is, people feel like they're not heard, regardless of where you are in the state. People feel like they're not represented or they're not being heard or valued or believed. And so, you know, I was raised in the Wellstone for Senate campaign in 2002. That's how I learned how to do politics. And the way that we did politics is by listening to folks, showing up, and having ridiculous amounts of cups of coffee with people. Um, bad coffee with people. And, and, but the, that is how, that's how you do it. And I feel like that's what we've gotten away from, um, is just showing up and listening to people. Is, the, is this a rural urban divide that people love to talk about? Is that as uh, sort of pronounced as people talk about it? Is it uh, different than people talk about it? Is it basically sort of the way that it looks on a map. Maybe all those. Um, and, and seriously, I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's real to a certain degree. Every area based on geography and economics is going to have different challenges. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that because you're in a rural area, uh, you're totally disen, disenchanted with the urban area. You're totally disconnected from it. You see nothing there. But I think Peggy was right about each of these areas felt they weren't being listened to. And what happened in Minnesota is they, I believe, they took the same model they took nationally, and they went to these areas, and people exacerbated that split. They made it worse than it actually was. How so? They turned it into, they told them that these people don't care for you. The reason, and I'll give you an example of this. They told us in rural Minnesota, in southern Minnesota, the reason that Highway 14 that connects Mankato to Rochester is not four lane all the way is because we're wasting money on transit projects in Minneapolis. And so they pitted commuters and transit commuters in the Twin Cities against rural folks out there. We all know the real reason it's not being built is they don't want to fund it to get it done. Mm -hmm. But that caused great angst because now all of a sudden it was, you're taking from me, I've got, I would have better place to live if it wasn't for you. And folks up here are saying, well, I think more tax dollars go from the urban area to the rural area than the other way around. And now all of a sudden, they, were, they successfully pitted one area against another. They pitted one group against another, something that wasn't there before. And then the politics started to become tribal on that. I'm from greater Minnesota, and that makes it different. And, and you saw this in the, the 2008 election. I, I think the, uh, the former half-term governor from Alaska coined it real America. Real America is different. And, and, and most people know real America is wherever they live at that point. And, and so I think it is, it is real in our politics. It is real in some of the differences. It is not insurmountable, but it is the human condition to always balkanize. If we, if we split up, to be honest with you, people talking about political parties, if we were honest in this country, there's 323 million political parties. Whatever personally is right for you, and if somebody that's running, well, you're not exactly right on all my issues. Oh, I thought you Congress know. was dysfunctional already, and so, now it's yeah, great. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so I think it's real, but it, it is not insurmountable. Uh, I think Peggy and I believe that there's conversations to be had, and there's ways to, to make that, uh, that divide less uh and and also recognize that the differences amongst the state are there's beauty in that rural areas are not 
failed urban areas. They, they did not set out to become Chicago in Adrian, Minnesota. That's a different lifestyle. And uh, so I think recognizing that makes a difference. I, hey, since you brought it up, what's a, what's a Walls-Flanagan transportation plan uh, look like? What does transportation look like in a Walls-Flanagan sort of administration? And go. <laughs> well, can I come back to what you're sure. talking about before? And yeah. I will, will answer your question. Um, but it, I think, you know, when we think about this, like, rural-urban divide, you know, we're just tackling it straight on, right? When you look at our ticket, it looks like Minnesota. And I think that's a big part of the reason why, you know, we decided to come together and run together um, was because, like, we think that, that folks across the state can see themselves reflected in this table and in you. Oh, Yeah. Um, but I, I think to, to, you know, the congressman's point, um, there's this, this story, this untrue story that's being told about if this community gets, this community does not get. Right. Um, and, you know, like, I'm a super fan of the Southwest LRT. Um, I am. Yeah. And I, I've had, there's a couple other folks here, too. Um, uh, but, I, but I think part of that is, is making sure that people know, right, that what benefits, right, the Twin Cities Metro, that also benefits greater Minnesota. And when we invest, you know, in greater Minnesota, there's a bridge, right, that was built that serves yes. seven families. Families. Yes. But these seven families provide 90,000 people in Minnesota with food, right? With, and so when we think about this, like that divide, there's more that brings us together when we sort of look for those connections and tear us apart. So I think that like yeah. that transportation plan right looks like minnesota wait let's do uh we're gonna do this like newlywed game like you can't look at each other how do you feel about southwest light rail (laughs) (laughs) i support it and uh i I said i think peggy's point though in, in making the case that the real thing is is not me supporting it or not even getting the permit to build it which we know there's has its issues to get the permits to build it so many of these things are getting the social permit to do things. And, and I think we've stopped trying to seek the social permit before we try and do things, and that gets us to split. And I think our politics is talking about the front end. Having Peggy says this, and I love this line, that the people most affected by the policies that, that we make must be at the table before the policy is made. That's really, that's really powerful. And, and not just really powerful, it's the most effective ways to get things done. So if you are trying to build something that has the potential to be controversial, I've always felt it's in your best interest. Build the coalition ahead of time. Anticipate where all the problems are going to be. Go out and listen to folks and, and try and mitigate those. And there, there are examples of doing this. And uh, I'll give a quick one. Mm-hmm. Winona. If anybody, anybody from Winona, you got to clap. It's the shout out to Winona. So uh, anyway. <laughs> hey, thanks. So when Minnesota... When Minnesota had its <laughs> when Minnesota had its uh, uh, sesquicentennial, that's 150 years for some of you. When they had that, <laughs> we on the stamp they made a stamp for Minnesota. It was the iconic bridge across the Mississippi down at Winona. Well, that bridge was built on the same design as the I-35W bridge. So the minute that that thing collapsed, they went down there and found out that the gusset plates had the same problem. So we shut it down. It became an 80-mile round trip to go around if you were in Wisconsin or coming around. And so we had to decide quickly. We had to decide how we were going to do this, how we were going to fund a bridge. And it was one of those conflicts of they designed the original bridge, and the city came back and said, well, it tears down our it tears down our iconic bridge. It, it messes things up. And we kept going back and forth with this. We had these big public meetings where we had drawings up. We did that exercise, some in your companies, where you put the stick on the one you want first or whatever you thought were kind of crazy. But we did all that. We ended up building a new bridge that will last 100 years. And they built it in a manner where it sets right alongside. So the profiles with the old bridge that was turned into a bike hiking trail to connect to Wisconsin, more likely for to get people out of Wisconsin now with <laughs> their governor, come to us, uh, come to our side. But, but it, was a, it was a fabulous thing. And it met almost no resistance. And it had great buy-in. And this thing had the potential to rip a community apart. Those are, that's the way you go about it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so I want to ask... Um, I, there's a there's a several specific issues I want to get to, and I should say in the second half of the show we open up for you all to ask questions of yeah. our, our guests. Yay! Uh, so, um, but I I wanted to ask this: um, moving from representing you know the first district of Minnesota, which if people know is all of southern Minnesota, to representing the whole state, are there 
Are there things that you imagine approaching differently, that your job is different because you're representing an entire state, or in your case, you're representing one district right now, representing the whole state versus representing that one area? So, District 46A whoop, whoop, um, <laughs> is uh, St. Louis Park, Golden Valley, Plymouth, and Medicine Lake. Um, and Which of those is your favorite? <laughs> my daughter attends st louis park public schools oh there you go that's just a statement of fact okay um so i w- i will say this um you know for me i think uh as one of four native women who's in the minnesota legislature um i have uh, yeah thanks for that um part of my role is already to think about yes and right so i represent my community what a good improviser wow that's just that's wonderful Uh, good (laughs) um and that i have a responsibility as one of four native women to ensure that you know folks feel represented and we've got our people of color and indigenous caucus which is taking into account the experience of folks all across the state and all across the region so that is part of my job already what i will say though is the the sort of scuttlebutt that you know we hear is like oh well you know peggy's gonna stay in the twin cities metro and tim will go to greater minnesota and the reality is like come on we're responsible for the entire state. And so, you know, if we're going up to Itasca County or if we're, you know, if we're going over to, you know, to Hibbing or, you know, to Bemidji or Minnetonka, that we both have responsibility for those communities. Um, and so, like, I, I just think it's, it's showing up. It's continue, continuing to show yeah. up. Yeah. And I think the difference, for, well, I would, first of all, it's about style, about how you're going to do it, how you bring people together. Uh, I'm proud that I represent an area that is the second most Republican district in America with a Democrat setting in it. Um, and yeah, and I'm proud of that. Not, and, and you're not able to do that if I think, and this is why my pet peeve, you want to know how to fix Congress? Nonpartisan citizen redistricting campaign finance That's reform right. would fix that. So that would fix it. But I'm a living example, I think, of where it's at, and this is, this is an interesting to see if you can govern. I think I'm judged far more on effectiveness than anything else, which is actually a pretty good measure for people who are in public service. It should be your effectiveness. And I think bringing that ability to compromise, to find people together uh, to do that. So I take the same style, and, and they're not necessarily analogous, but, but tough issues like water quality, existing with farming. They're not binary choices, but that's how it's framed. I can take the way I've worked, and and I'm always proud. I say I get the corn growers to endorse me, and I get the Sierra Club. And I said, I think you take that same model up north if you're going to talk mining, or you take it into the cities. But the thing that I'm learning on this, and this is where I think there is the strength of this, the strength of having Peggy, who understands issues of the urban core, issues of, uh, of, of the ring cities, those types of things, Putting her in Worthington to talk about the issues that are there is a really good way to start to bind us together. Put me in the cities and talk to me about opportunity gaps in a way that looks different than Mankato. And I think that's a better model than just actually saying, here's our stake in the ground and we're going to do it this way. You can't do that. And that's why we're ungovernable uh, almost as a nation. So we think we can make a new model. I'm trying to decide what would uh, be the least awkward, uh, whether it be to try and talk about uh, buffer strips, uh, polymet mine, or the NRA. So let's just do uh, the NRA stuff. Uh, so, uh, so, I mean, this has been, you mentioned Scuttlebutt a minute ago, and that's what a lot of people have been saying yes. is like, um, you know, you're running uh, to be a governor in a relatively progressive state, and particularly with a DFL party that um, is uh, progressive uh, in a lot of ways that maybe in more states that have a, a longer tradition of maybe yeah. being uh, red, blue, back and forth don't. And this issue has come up very directly yeah. where it's you are you've been endorsed by the NRA and uh, the gun issue has really come home for a lot of people over the last several years while you've been in Congress. So yes. I know you've already addressed this to some degree. And this is maybe going back to my question before somewhere where I wonder is the way that you govern the state of Minnesota or the way that you act or um, implement policies different because you're representing all of Minnesota than if you were representing just southern Minnesota? 
Yeah. Well, I think our policies as a as a representative, this is that age old question. Are you representing based on just your conscience or your constituency or your caucus, uh, how you're doing it? Uh, and I make no bones about it. I, I grew up hunting. Um, I served 24 years in the military. I also th remind people I ran in a district that had one other Democrat in 125 years. And people forget this in 2007. I ran on full marriage equality. I ran on a woman's right to choose. Because I'm a sane individual, I ran on climate change. Um, I, I ran on those things in that district and on renewable energy, but I also didn't make any bones about it. I grew up with this. The NRA that I grew up with was a, was a, a, a gun safety organization. They have now lost their mind, as many of us know, and moved. Um, and, and I tell people, if they believe that I got the support from them, if that influenced the way I vote, I'm, they're probably not going to support me anyway. I do feel strongly about a Second Amendment right to vote, but over the last several years especially, I sat in my office in D.C., and I know we're at a comedy show, but it's hard when you bring up the gun issue. I sat yeah. in my office with 22 parents from Sandy Hook whose children are the exact same age as my son Gus, who's now 11. Their sons and daughters are dead. Um, if you're not looking at that and trying to find policy to, to make sense of this, responsible gun owners like me, and I voted new numerous times. You can do background checks. You can make sure that we do research into gun violence of why that's happening. You can make sure that those things happen. And I've, and, and I've supported that. And, and I get it that it, it, the Republicans are, are praising me because I'm the best shot in Congress. So they tell people that that doesn't help us in the primary necessarily. Um, but I'm a terrible shot. Yeah, <laughs> that helps. So, it balances. Yeah. But, but I, I think telling the story, I, I truly believe that the credibility that I have amongst responsible gun owners and the desire in this state to not wake up to Las Vegas or Sandy Hook or uh, Orlando or whatever the next one it will be uh, is very strong, and we want to fix this. So I, I tell people, I know when you lay with dogs, you get fleas, but I think they see me on all these issues, and people will walk up to me and say this. I do not know how you can be so right on a lot of issues and be so wrong on this one. I think it is who I am. I recognize that... Um, uh, that that gun violence is not just an urban core issue. Domestic gun violence is is actually more prevalent in rural areas. So all of these things play into it. My my pledge is to tell people that I don't think it's a binary choice again. I think you can have responsible gun ownership by making sure you don't have guns in the hands of uh, people who shouldn't. And also, if people want to know, uh, Peggy uh, does not agree with me on every issue, and I did not. Uh, we did not join together to be in lockstep. We joined together to find solutions to these types of problems. Now I really want to ask, like, what do you not agree with each other on? But I, I want to. <laughs> I want to dig into this just one step farther, then, um, yeah. because you mentioned some of the things maybe as a congressperson you can vote for yeah. or do in terms of gun control and, and uh, gun rights. What are things Minnesota yeah. can or should do on that front that well, that a governor or a legislature can do? Yeah, here's what I would say. For those of you out here wonder about this, responsible gun owners, they don't fear that Democrats are going to come take their guns. They get tired of being blamed for these shootings like they're responsible. And it questions their core that their hearts don't break for that. They don't see these children being killed. I said, I think one of the first things you need to do is establish trust as a nation that this is a complex issue. It does involve many things. It involves access to mental health care without demonizing people to go get mental health care. Just because you're getting mental health care does not mean you're dangerous or violent. And that type of thinking drives people away. So I think in the state of Minnesota, one of the first things you do that the research shows does helps prevent this is do universal background checks. Fully fund them. Get a universal background checks. Don't leave any loopholes in that. And as a responsible gun owner, I have no problem doing that. I think that's the start to the next, uh, to the next phase. Can Minnesota just do that as a state? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we can. We can. Okay. Uh, so last question for this round. And then again, in the second half, you all can ask a whole series of questions. I'm just curious. Uh, I don't know if that, maybe this will be very easy. Maybe it'll be awkward. Hey, uh, Mark Dayton, Tina Smith, what do you all think of them? Hey, I think they're pretty great. Yeah. What, what do you, yeah, uh, so, but what's different maybe is the question then more specifically. Yeah. Is, I mean, what, uh, if you think about like, if you were governor, <laughs> lieutenant governor in a year's time, uh, what is it of that might change or that people would notice is different uh, in terms of? Yeah, so the lieutenant governor's mansion will be in St. Louis Park in the Bronx Park neighborhood. <laughs> um, so that'll, that'll be different. I mean, here's the deal. I think um, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this uh, is because Tina and Mark have changed how this works. Yes. Um, and, you know, and I think... Um, 
listen, there's a lot of really amazing people who are running for governor right now. Um, and I just, I think that's important. It's important to say. And uh, I decided to join this ticket because I think, one, we look like Minnesota, um, and I think we have that opportunity to really build some relationships and bridges. But two, like, to be completely honest, I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity to have more access than we've ever had for indigenous people, people of color, those who've been marginalized, kids with a different colored lunch ticket, um, like yeah. myself, right? Like, I wasn't going to pass up that opportunity. So when I think about what's the what it what will be the same is that we're going to continue on this model of co-governing yeah. um, and enhance it and make sure that people have a seat at the table. And frankly, like as an organizer, I think our job is to make sure that people are at that table so we're not doing things to people, but doing things with people. And my hope is that that is what is going to be a little different in yeah. how we decide to govern. To, to that end, have you all talked about what because lieutenant governors have had very different roles as you mentioned mm -hmm. uh tina smith has had a very different role than uh even her predecessor under mark dayton mm -hmm. uh and so have you talked about what this relationship would be like if you were governor lieutenant governor what would what would your job be exactly because it's not necessarily fully fleshed out in a constitutional sense mm -hmm. as to what it could be right I mean, I think what we've talked about so far, again, is coming back to this co-governing model. It's no secret that like sort of my jam and the thing I really care about is issues surrounding children and families, right? I expect to be able to lead on that issue. I expect to be able to, to lead on issues of, of racial equity. I expect that we're going to make decisions in partnership together, and that's, you know, what, what we talked about. Um, I'm just going to name this. Like some folks have said like, well, isn't that a strategic decision or isn't that tokenization? As a, you know, I'm like, listen. I am not a shrinking violet. I am not a wallflower. Anybody who knows me knows that, like, if I need to, we'll throw down. <laughs> right? Ow! But Did like, you just rip out your but, earrings. But I'll just be like, but I'll just be honest. Like, I think, I think that, like, that's get her a napkin. This is blood coming. No, there's not. But I think that that's important, and like, that's why you know we have healthy debates and really important conversations that I think people in Minnesota are craving, are craving the kind of dialogue that, you know, yeah. that we can have and, and that can change the way that we govern. And this was pretty organic how it happened. When I first announced I was going, I'm going around talking to elected officials and trying to, go, uh, to, trying to hear what they had to say, gain their support and things. Um, it, it almost seemed almost predestined to a little bit when Peggy and I talked. I think we kind of knew where things were going because it is. And I, I think your earlier question, uh, Mark Dayton and Tina Smith have changed how this is done. And we always talk about uh, military-wise force multiplier. You're better to get more people involved more people engaged in this and the idea of having uh, a, a smart legislator who knows issues being engaged. I have always said this in organizations I've been with. I try and create the space for people to achieve all they can, uh, uh, understanding that that continues to change. It continues to evolve. And I think that's a great thing for Minnesota. We have a governance that people expect to work. They still have a relative amount of faith in the system. And this is our opportunity to, to, to not become a, a, another Wisconsin or a Kansas or whatever it might be. It's our opportunity to, uh, to redo it. And this is new. This looks different. And I think, I think credit should be given uh, to the governor and lieutenant governor to, to Mark and Tina that they've shown what a strong partnership co-governing model looks like of bringing more people in and we thought it was important this is a job interview this this running for governor a ridiculously long and expensive <laughs> job interview but but it is to let people see this and and we made the decision early Peggy said someone asked why are you guys doing this so early and she said we got a lot of people to talk to and a lot of things to learn so I I think this is ever evolving I think it's very organic I, I think it looks more like how we want our democracy to look um, looks more localized looks the more way you do it that way and, and we can do that and so I'm excited about it uh, on I hope a, you are I, on uh, a groan over Kansas uh, we're gonna call, call this <laughs> we're gonna call this first half uh, to an end can we do a tremendous round of applause uh, Representative Tim Walls over there. All right. Oh, okay. Oh, you're just waving to them. You're not waving for... No, Do you have a question? You want to know? Okay. So if you have a question, raise your hand and I will race towards you in a non-threatening manner. Wow. Uh, I'm going to go with the lady very violently shaking her hand at me. <laughs> 
I'm a city person who grew up in northern Minnesota. And you mentioned mining. Yeah. And Governor Dayton just came out in for the polymet mining designed to court the 8th district and not screw it up before the gubernatorial election. So anyway, you mentioned mining and you mentioned building consensus. Um, I'm wondering, what is your plan to build consensus over a proposed copper nickel mine which has never been done anywhere in the world without causing massive environmental destruction? In a city like Ely where um, when I grew up, and they were developing the boundary waters or putting that through, the town was divided. People were being, you know, burned in effigy, fights at school. The town now is more divided than it was when the boundary waters was being developed. Um, so anyway, I want to know what your uh, views on the mine. Should it go ahead, should it not? And then how, what is your plan to ensure that our environment does not get eaten up by this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, this is one of those, and people said, well, stay away from those issues. That's one of the first things I did was go up there, and if, if, your pers if someone's running for governor, they should, they should take these tough issues on. They should walk the land. They should see where it's at. Uh, I'm a canoeist, uh, unabashed uh, Boundary Waters, uh, uh, been up there many, many times. And, and I think, first of all, and what Governor Dayton said, and I, I think it's really important we be very specific on things, he said that he supported the process going forward. There has been no environmental impact statement done yet, and there has been no mining permit issued. That will mean following all the rules that were in place, the stringent rules that the state of Minnesota can put in place. And I think for all of us, we must follow the science, we must follow the rules that are in place, but if we can, and this is the if, if we can do it, we should do it, and be very clear about this, that the that copper nickel mining is very dangerous, as you said. There, there, is, there is risk associated with it. Um, also, the copper, though, is the key component to a renewable energy economy because climate change is also really, really dangerous to the, uh, the survival of the planet. So trying to come up and build the consensus starts with the respect for people who make a living by mining minerals is one of the foundational principles that built the land. That was taconite mining, not copper-nickel mining. But with that being the case, my position has been let's let the science come out Let's follow the processes in place. Should it be deemed that this is possible to do it, make sure you have all of the safeguards and the liabilities in place, and then you look at each one of these. Polymet is different than other proposed mines. Take a look at that and move forward. And so. Anything you want to add? Yeah. So, and you should stay after and talk to us because you clearly have more to say. So we should talk. Yep. And not right now, but we should talk about it. Okay. Um, I, I see you. Okay, I see you. Um, so one of the things that came up is when one of the first votes that I took uh, when I joined the legislature was on expanding or extending unemployment benefits for folks up on the up on the range. And I got a lot of shit. I'm just going to say it. I got a lot of shit from my colleagues. Are you allowed to say that on this show? I think so. <laughs> I just did. Um, from, from some of my colleagues uh, about that vote. Because part of it said mining is great forever and ever and ever is essentially what it said. And the reason that I voted in favor of extending those unemployment benefits is because I know what it's like to be a kid who sits at a table who has a parent who looks at them while they're eating and they're not eating because there's not enough food in the house. So I say that because when we talk about these issues, and frankly, the, the article that recently came out in, the, in uh, the New York Times that some of you uh, may have seen about mining, it was so disrespectful to folks who live where you're from and people who are only supporting, trying to support their kids, right, and their families. So unless we can have a conversation that starts from that place of I see you and the fact that you are trying to stay where you're from and you're trying to provide for your family and I, and I respect that, I don't want to have that conversation unless that's where we start on both sides. Sorry, I just uh, feel I, really and I know that there's a lot about, more to say on this, but issue. I have like a dozen hands before I even open it up. So I have one right here. Congressman, my name is Nico. Um, I am a seven-year counselor at American Legion Boys State, which oh, you have come and uh, taught at before. And what we do there is we educate the youth about civics. Um, Minnesota 
is widely known for having one of the highest rates of civic participation in voting. Yes. Um, we're coming up to a midterm election, and people really don't give a damn about midterm elections. Yeah. What do you foresee your team doing in the next year to really reach out and make people care about the election as it comes? Because I feel that in this election climate and in this political season, people are disinclined to participate, especially yeah. after they saw that in the last election, even though the popular vote was won, you know, the system went the other way around. So what do you foresee doing to yeah. get people to care more? Yeah. First of all, thanks for the work on Boys and Girls State. I, uh, I oftentimes get out there to, uh, to speak on that. One of, my, uh, one of my former students was a Boys State governor, if I recall that right, uh, from Mankato. And, uh, and, and so that's an important piece. Yeah, I agree with you on this. First of all, the idea of, of voter participation on the the mechanic side of this, we should be making it as easy as possible to vote. We should be making sure there's no barriers. We should be making sure people are reestablished. That piece of it. But I do think it is a, a fair argument to make. You can, we should be voting on Saturday. We should be having everybody registered. We should be getting felons able to get their voting rights back. All the things we know we care about. But his question was more specific and more important almost, I think, than that. How do we motivate people to care about this, that the system matters, that they're being reflected? And, and we made a conscious effort on this. There's many different ways you can run a campaign. You can run them top down with ads. You can do the, all the different ways of, of looking at this. We were very adamant that this campaign must be run the way you're talking about. It must be people-powered. It must be grassroots. We've seen this happen once in a while. It's our job together building the coalition to get people excited about this, for them to believe this is not a Walls-Flanagan campaign. This is a Minnesota campaign. This is a campaign to improve their lives and they actually have some... You know what gets people out. You know what gets people excited when they believe that their candidate is speaking their hearts, speaking their values, and getting out that they believe they can make a difference. And I think we feel very strongly about that, of trying to get as many people engaged as we can. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is... This is what I spent my, you know, my career doing, both through, you know, just my, my work in the legislature, but more importantly, before that, my work with Wellstone Action. So traveling across the country, engaging people in like how to have conversations about issues they really care about. So I ran the Native American Leadership Program at Wellstone Action, where we put voter engagement plans into communities. And the only way that that worked was when people, we were able to answer the question, why does it matter and why should I care? And meeting people where they're at. I think so often people are like, oh, you know, there's all these, these voters who are apathetic. You know, oh gosh, those other people who stay home and just don't care as much as I do. That's not true. We're just not talking to people about the issues that are most important to them. And so, you know, when I think about what this looks like, again, it's going to folks in communities. It's not waiting for people to come to us. I think that that's the mistake that we make over and over again. If people just cared enough, they'd show up. Well, we got to give them a reason to care. Okay. And the, oh, yeah, sorry. I, I can I talk a, a lot about voter engagement. I had but. a hand up here, and I lost it. There it is, right there. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm curious, given all the cuts coming in the proposed budget to schools and health care and all kinds of stuff, how you feel like Minnesota can protect the kids yeah, certainly, uh, again, one of the reasons I said I'm coming back and run for governor is is that these decisions are going to meet at the state level. And to be very honest with you, we're going to have to build a firewall against some very, very bad policies. You saw a budget come out last week. And, and budgets are far more than fiscal documents. They're moral documents on what we care about. And, and we talk about, and again, any voter, I think it's important to understand, I believe at the heart, people want to see a prosperous state. They want to see opportunities for kids. We, and it's our responsibility to make the case to people, how do you best invest those taxpayer dollars for a return to them? How do you get them excited about believing that makes a difference? Make the case. And I, the educator and me as a teacher, all of us in, you know, uh, Ed 101, Maslow's hierarchy, we as Democrats tend to uh, focus on self-actualization. Make the case why those investments return us 12 to 1 for early childhood education. Make the investment why having every child ready with pre-K, universal pre-K, gives us the opportunity to make sure they're prepared. And if you have to, if it's not a moral imperative to allow each child to reach their full potential, we're going to have a better qualified workforce that is going to make you more money for your company if you invest in this. Whatever it takes to motivate you, it makes moral sense, it makes economic 
economic sense, but I don't think we've done a good job of telling voters what their investment is, what they're getting out of it, and then they're able to label us, oh, Democrats want to just throw more money after it. You know, I've said this, again, with a radical thing for education is fund it correctly and respect your teachers and make sure we're able to retain and keep those folks in the classroom. That's that's the radical proposal. Well, so. you know, and I think, you know, I think that's right. And we have lots of conversations at the Capitol about those people. Those people who use the child care assistance program, those people who use SNAP, those people who use Section 8. I am those people. And so when we think about, you know, the folks who are coming back to, you know, what we talked about before, the people who are at the table making decisions, so often they're disconnected from those who are actually affected by the decisions that we're making. One of the things that was most surprising to me when I got to the legislature is I literally heard, hey, guys, make sure that there's people who support your bills who come to testify in support of them. And people like looked around and I was like, what are we doing? Unless these come from people... We shouldn't be introducing them. So when we talk about these issues, the decisions that Republicans made last session, in particular around the Health and Human Services Bill, are appalling. I sit on that committee. We had hundreds of people come in to testify, to tell us heartbreaking stories about themselves, about the chil- their children, the people they love and care about. We parade them out, and then we punch them in the gut. Because we say there's just not enough money because we're going to give $100 million to Big Tobacco. No way. So when we talk about there's not enough money, our priorities are all wrong. And so uh, when we look out, if you want to get really nerdy about it for a second, if you will with me, there's not money in the tails. We have funded money for the next two years, and then we are going to be in a deficit because of this Republican-controlled legislature. So my hope is that we get there in 2018 to protect the most vulnerable folks in this state because that is what we are called to do. Um, What specific policies would you enact to address the economic and educational disparities within communities of color? So I think so often when we talk about these issues, we think there's like one solution, right? Kids don't come in pieces. Families don't come in pieces. We need to make sure that we have access, that families have access to livable wages, housing, access to health care. But when we think about a lot of these gaps, listen, the first time I ever saw a teacher who looked like me, I was a sophomore at the University of Minnesota. It changed everything. So when we think about what educational equity looks like, it looks like students like myself seeing themselves reflected in their teachers, being intentional about creating those pipelines to have kids see themselves in leadership positions. It has to do with curriculum, with telling kids the truth, right? And, and like who we are and where we live and where we are as a state. We've got laws on the books right now that say you have to teach kids about the people who lived here first that are not enforced. Ooh, how would you enforce them? Well, having a lieutenant governor that's native is a good place to start. (laughs) I don't know, right? Um, But also, again, even just the lesson that we just went through in remodeling the Capitol of the images that that young people see there when they walk in there, right? Like, I don't know, the Battle of New Ulm is not like a really welcoming photo or welcoming painting for for folks like myself. So when we, we think about that, we've also created opportunities to represent the historic piece of it, but also say, and this is what it meant and what it continues to mean to like contemporary Native people. And I don't think that kids can't handle the truth of what has happened in history. And we have to tell, we have to tell that real history and make sure, again, kids see themselves reflected in their teachers and their curriculum and that we're being intentional about opening the door so that more kids see teaching as a pathway to them. And I think this policy, I, I, it's a great one. In the state of Minnesota, this, for all the great things we do, being first in opportunity gap amongst our children of color, being 
first in uh, incarceration rates of people of color. Until we decide this, these are not opportunity gaps of communities of color. They're Minnesota opportunity gaps. And as long as we call them opportunity gaps of communities of color, it becomes someone else's problem. It is not owned by us altogether. That, that is a that is a mistake we've made. And I think it's together with these hard policies and changing this, that that opportunity gap that is happening in those communities is is pulling the entire state in a direction that we can't find acceptable. It doesn't make us stronger. It doesn't make us more equitable. And we all need to own that. It's how we talk about it. Okay, we have a couple of questions I have to promise to get to. I'm sorry. I've, I've already promised a couple people I was going to come to them. So. All right. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Thanks. Um, so uh, if you win, if you win uh, next year, you will most likely have a Republican legislature that you'll have to deal with. Um, so how will you how will you address the fact that you'll have split government and to get some of your your uh, policies enacted? Yeah, no, this is the really important piece, and I think that's one of the things that I would make the case that I bring to this. A couple uh, about a month and a half ago, the New York Times did a story, and they said if you want to know how Congress is supposed to work, l- drop the mic. And uh, no, I <laughs> said. <laughs> If you want to know how Congress is supposed to work, look no further than the VA committee. And I serve as the Democrats' ranking member on there to a Republican, Phil Rowe from Tennessee. I, I, can, I need a translator to understand the guy. We come from different worlds, different places. Um, but we found a working relationship that's predicated on we have the same goals, we share many of the same values, and how do we get to those outcomes? I think it is really important uh, to bring a skill that shows that that's happening. Um, I think, again, as I said, if you want to move people along... We need to do a good job of messaging these things to make it very, very politically painful for these people to cast the votes they're casting because their constituents are no longer agreeing with them. We need to change that conversation in there because elected officials will move where that's at. And I'm not even saying that as a pejorative. So it's our job to build that out. It's our job, in especially in these greater Minnesota areas where there isn't a lot of representation. I mean, think about it in the United States Congress. Ten rural Democrats left in the entire country. If you look at a map of that red-blue map, it is blue from the edge of my district by Sioux Falls all the way to Washington State. It is red all the way across there. We're not going to just try and think election strategy to get that back. We have to reach the center of people's lives so they say these people are with us. And here in Minnesota, Peggy and I are trying to make the case that these policies are best for the state of Minnesota and it's best for you to come on board. And we have to prove that. I mean, that's our job. Representative Flanagan, I mean, you've been in the Minnesota legislature. You know how easy it is to work with Republicans as a Democrat. So, I mean, I'm wondering if you can speak to that to some degree. I can. Thanks for asking, Tane. I appreciate it. Um, Here's the deal. I think the thing that doesn't get covered right, is, is when we actually agree. Um, it is a, a lot more exciting to talk about when we're duking it out. And listen, in the final hours of session, it gets a little rough, right? People are a little punchy, um, you know, and, and we have some tough conversations. But here's what I'll say. There's also opportunities, right, to get Republican co-authors. I have a culturally competent doula bill, right, where we're offering culturally competent care, for prenatal care, for women of color, for indigenous women, for African-American women, for African immigrants. And my second co-author is a Republican, right? There are places where we can... But there's places where we can All the doulas in the audience. Big round of applause. But I think that that's so important, right? That's part of, like, some of the people that I, honestly, that I'm closest to in, in the legislature, we don't always agree politically but we can have robust conversations and can find that common ground in those places. With one of my colleagues, we don't agree on reproductive choice. But he's like, I am with you when it comes to figuring out how to provide prenatal care and then making sure that young children and their families have what they need. So let's find those spaces where we can agree and figure out how to move forward. That's not going to get you on the cover of the you know, front page of the Star Tribune, but it matters. Okay, I, I promise this ge- this gentleman raced out of his seat in order to... Did you write it down even? Wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. That's good. I prepared. Okay. <laughs> so we touched on um, your relationship with the NRA before. Yeah. So I have some specific questions for you. Uh, you said you favored waiting periods. Would you support a ban on AR-15 rifles like they have in California? And do you think that a person should be able to sell a gun to their brother without going through... An FFL, and I assume you know what an FFL yes, is. Yes, I do. But I don't. 
Uh, I don't know federal, a lot of federal things, firearm license um, and this issue of universal background checks. And when you're talking universal background checks, it's the loophole in that you can come and do a, a gun show and you can sell there, which always seemed very unfair economically to me that you have people paying taxes and operating a gun store in a town and they pay taxes. They do the background checks. They do everything else. But if you set up a table at the armory that you rent for 20 bucks, you don't have to. I think people look at that. As far as transferring uh, amongst family, um, I have uh, two shotguns and one rifle. One of the shotguns came from my wife's uh, grandfather, and the other one came from her grandfather, who he carried in World War II. It, it doesn't have it. And on those, uh, I think those things should be able to be in family or, or heirlooms should be able to be moved around. Well, uh, is your hunting buddy your brother? Yeah. What if he's not my brother? What if he has no relationship? Then you do a universal background check, I think, on many of these. I think you can do that, and I think most people aren't uh, opposed to doing it. I've always voted. I carried the bill to fully fund this. The problem is these things aren't fully funded, so you end up with loopholes in it where somebody gets approved or doesn't get approved. So I think you can I'm going to just say, I mean, like, I mean, so I, the, is... Are we talking hunting buddies in, like, a Brokeback Mountain sense or just a more general, <laughs> like... General sense. And then I think I would, and make the case to your other, I, and I think this is where folks who want to get at the heart of this need to be very specific on the types of weapons they're talking about, what you're saying. My issue has been on this. If, if you are too dangerous to own a firearm, I don't think it really matters what kind it is. Um, you are still too dangerous to own that. And when we go into that space of starting to, and, and don't get me wrong, there, there's always been limits on this. You don't, I was a howitzer canner. You can't buy a howitzer, nor should you be able to, um, or whatever it might be. So that there, there is that. I said I was open to looking at that after the Sandy Hook because I think most of us understand um, what we saw in Las Vegas is the ability to deliver that much rate of fire uh, equals that many more casualties. Now, the, the question is, how do we talk to those folks who say, you know what? I'm a responsible gunner. I did the background check. I can use these things in a responsible manner. Why am I being pigeonholed? That's that's the question. And those are the people. Those are the people. What's that? What do you need that kind of gun for? Have you asked them? Is what I would ask you. Yes, sports shooting, uh, trap shooting, or whatever. This is where it gets into when people say, "Well, how many guns do you need?" And and they will respond, "I don't know. How many golf clubs do you need?" And someone said, well, that's not apples to apples. Yes. And they would say, yes, it is apples to apples because we do it for different things. What my point to you is, is that as a society, let's all agree on this, that there are people that are too dangerous and should not have their hands on firearms. There are places where firearms should not be in with, with crowds. There are places and activities that always have regulated that. But you do have a constitutional right to do some of these things. I think if you start from that place, we start having the conversation. And I do think it starts with this universal background check. Your, your question is, is specific and will need to be hammered out on this idea of what do you do amongst families. But those are the conversations we can have if we start out with this premise that the vast majority of people, gun owner and non-gun owners, are horrified and tragically heartbroken when someone is killed in a manner like you saw. How do we find the solution to stop that is what we got to bring them together to do. They're not seeing that right now. A large number of responsible gun owners feel like they're being blamed for all these tragedies when many of them are more than open to the idea of universal background checks and the conversation of what do you do with some of these firearms that are uh, heavy caliber, too many, you know, too rapid a fire. So the, all those things can be there. But I'm telling you, look what's happened in the country. We're not moving anywhere. We're stagnated in it, and that's the part that's just frustrating to me. Is this one of these like long late night back and forth that you all have? Yes. About uh, through text message of you know of yeah. or Snapchat yes. or that's whatever. Big, yeah, they're big. We're big Snapchatters. Um, uh, I'm like I'm a kitty, you're a dog. I don't know. Um, but I would say, I would say you know like coming back to this issue, right? Like 74 percent of gun owners believe in universal background yes. checks. 92 percent of Americans overall believe in universal background yes. checks. And damn it, if we're not going to be the ones to do it, right. like I just I think like you know that's like that's we should just do it. Um, and that's the that's the place to start. I do think it's really important, Tane, that I mention as you're talking about getting things done in the legislature. I had one of two DFL bills that were brought to the House floor last year that were passed. My bill was the last last bill of the session that was passed. 
Was it also about doulas? No, I don't it wasn't about doulas. It was about firefighting commissions. There you go. Yay! <laughs> so I feel pretty good Dane, about that. Dane asked the question <laughs> of coming to this. I think this is this is the model we talked about. I think it's healthy to imagine your governor and lieutenant governor are challenging each other on these issues that impact people deeply, that they're challenging each other to find solutions, that they're figuring out together how to build counterintuitive coalitions. I think it's healthy. So uh, on that, that actually brings me to my last piece that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, we've had uh, some other candidates for governor, and you've mentioned that there's a lot of good people running for governor. So what is the question that people here should be asking of you or of the other candidates for governor? in order to try and figure out who they want to vote for. Yeah. I mean, I think the question is, how are you going to build coalitions to actually get things done? Yes, I agree with that, but I would say this too, who's going to win um, to make sure we get it? So I, I don't want to be crass on this, but you don't get to govern afterwards. Uh, we are concerned, and I want to build coalitions to govern afterwards, uh, but I am not interested in going down the road that Wisconsin has gone down, and, and I feel a sense of urgency that we need to get that done right. So I think the question you should ask them, what's your plan to win in November? What is your plan to stand in front of all that money? And, and, $50 million that will come in to paint us as something, all of the ads that will it's come. It's already started. It's already started. How do you stand up to that? So, uh, On that note, please, a big round of applause. Representative Tim Walls, Representative Peggy Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.